there have been a lot of people who've asked us how, how long it takes for us to make those, and it, it takes a long time. I mean, we go straight to YouTube, and there's this uh, website called The Bible Project, and The Bible Project is awesome because they, their goal is to go through book by book and really map it out so that you're getting the essence and the understanding of what's happening here uh, from an academic standpoint, from a theological standpoint, and it's it's great, whether you're, you're 10 or you're 80, it's, it's pretty phenomenal. And so what we've been doing is uh, bringing those in bit by bit as we've been going through the story. The story for us is our, our aim to help our church to have a, a better understanding biblically, a better, better literate perspective of what Scripture is saying from the beginning to the end, and what is the storyline of the Bible. And so we, that's why we've, uh, we've got this copy of the story, which has all the scripture um, that we're preaching through between now and April. It's not a Bible. Uh, it just has the, all the sections that we're preaching through from Genesis to Revelation. And so um, if you want to pick up one of these, they're at the guest hub. Um, if not, you're more than welcome to join with us as we go through each week along in your own copy of the Bible. And so if you've got your Bible, please turn to 2 Samuel 11. If you have your copy of the story, it's chapter 12, page 161. And, and what we're, we're looking at, we're in the second week of looking at the life of David. And David is, is one of the only guys that you're going to see, certainly in the Old Testament, us spend two weeks on because he is such a pivotal figure. But this is the point in his own story where he pivots drastically. Uh, today we're going to be talking through this account of his life and, and talking through the, the fact that we see in his story a picture of just unthinkable failure. We see uh, an unbelievable honesty, and we see a pathway to unparalleled restoration, all within his account. And we, each time we're looking at this, we see what Scripture means when Scripture says that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful. It's not just something for us to look back and have a morality tale about someone who did something cool that we could emulate, but it's actually a picture of a larger story, a picture of the gospel. So first off, as we're in this passage, we're going to be looking at the first aspect of this, which is a picture of unthinkable failure. Just to give you context, up to this point, David is the poster child for all that is good, okay? He is the hero of the story. Everyone up to this point is David. They love David. David is the guy. He was the shepherd kid. He was the odd man out. He was the one who was, was the one that shouldn't have been chosen and yet was. He was the one that shouldn't have gone up against Goliath, but he did. And he shouldn't have won, but he did. And, and it's revealed over and over again. It's not just because David's epic. It's because he's following an epic God. The one true God is working through him. And so when people looked at David, they're not just looking at a pompous guy who's, who's about his own agenda. They're looking at a guy who's following God. And so everyone is saying, David, I mean, David, David. And David is saying, David. And David gets to this point of the story, and everyone who's reading along is blindsided. This is the part, if you're David's biographer, you wish you didn't have to keep this in the story. And if you're David, you certainly wish you didn't have to have this accounting in the story, the, the failure with Bathsheba. And yet, here we are. So go to chapter 12, or uh, 2 Samuel, chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. It says this, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David, David, remained in Jerusalem. Okay, if you've, if you've grown up in church at all, and, and whenever they're preaching through this aspect of David's life, the pastors harp on this. 
for good reason. The, the author is giving us a, a real clear context understanding of, let's just show you how messed up this is. Before we even get into the messed up actions, let's talk about the messed up context. David is the king. He is the commander in chief. David's also a warrior. I mean, that's his gig. That's, that's his jam. That's what he does. And so David should have been there. And, and right from the get-go, the context is this. David should have been here, but David's here. David should have been over here fighting and leading, but David's at home chilling and resting. David should have been in battle. Instead, he finds his way into the bedroom. That's the, con- the total contrast of what's happening. David is not where David should have been. David gets to a point of going, yeah, I'm David. I'm David. I've got people to do that for me. I've arrived. When kings go out to war, David was at home. Second paragraph. On the evening, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. Pause. Okay, this woman, Bathsheba, is not being someone who's just being sketchy here. The poor did not have the privilege of privacy in the ancient world. David's suite, it's the penthouse suite, so he's got a massive vantage point. But the poor oftentimes had to bathe out in the open with very little um, to keep that a, a discreet moment for them. And so David is, is peering into, he's, as a voyeur, into something that he shouldn't have been seeing um, and in part was able to see from his position of power and her position of poverty. The man said, she's Bathsheba. She's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. Okay, just as we're going through, we should be like reading speed bumps into this. We're hitting speed bump after speed bump after speed bump that should have stopped David. And David's just plowing through, going 60 over each of the speed bumps. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Now, here's the thing. David should have been in battle. He was in the bedroom, number one. But number two, there was another dynamic that David should have already been uh, owning that he knew already, and that was this. If there was a time of battle, one of the things that you made sure that you did was to, as a, as a soldier or as the commander-in-chief, is that you abstained sexually from that, from, you ex- exchanged from, you abstained from any sexual activity, to, and it was just like a thing of like, look, we are on mission here. We're staying focused. I, I also think that it probably helped to keep wars brief, because if I'm going to, right, you got it. All right, so he, we know that this is something that David already owned because of the fact that, that he, in, a, in, a, when, in 1 Samuel, when he's running away from Saul, who wants to kill him, he flees, and he and his, the mighty men that he's traveling with, they're starving to death. They, go, they come up to the priest of Nob, and they say, hey, can we have some bread? And the priest says, hey, listen, I, I'd give you bread, but this is like sacred ritual bread. I can't give this to you unless you guys have been like sexually pure. And David's like, do you know who we are? We're warriors. We're soldiers, of course. Of course we've been sexually pure. And, and listen to how he responds to the priest. In, second, in 1 Samuel 21.5, David said to the priest, certainly women have been kept away from us, just as on previous occasions when I've gone out. The soldier's equipment is holy, even on an ordinary journey. How much more so will they be holy today along with their equipment? So David is making it very clear. He understands you don't go there. You don't go there. The first thing that David does, the, the act um, that, that crosses the line is David uses his power, his position, and his popularity to pursue a path God did not approve. David uses his position, his popularity, 
His power, everything leading up to this point. Again, his life has been a highlight reel. He is one that people are not saying no to. Why? He's David, people. Come on, David. David gets what David wants. And now David has drunk that Kool-Aid long enough that he's now believing it. And he's at a point where he's abstaining from the very place and position he should be in and using his position and his popularity and his power, everything else, to impose upon Bathsheba. Now, the interesting thing is later on when, when everything hits the fan and David gets caught, we understand that Bathsheba was not simply some, you know, just like she was after this as well because she is not called to task for her actions, giving us the picture that this was something that David imposed upon her, maybe not from a rapist standpoint, but certainly from someone who someone else couldn't say no to simply because of his position. This was an abusive move on David's part. David, the man after God's own heart. But it gets worse because the, the, the action itself was awful, terrible, horrible, but the cover-up made it worse. Okay, I don't know if the problems we cause are exponentially more problematic when we try to hide them. You know this, right? Like when we've done something wrong and then we try to cover it up. Do you remember when you were a kid when you first started to, like when, when you first lied to one of your parents? How many of you have lied to your parents before? Okay, how many have never lied to your parents? Liars, liars. Okay, here's the thing. You remember what that was like when all of a sudden like, who did this? Who did this? And you know in that moment, I am going to die if they know that I did it. And so what you, I, I didn't do it. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. It was Josh. You know, that, that's what we do. And we, and we found in that millisecond of logic, we tell ourselves, this is the key to me being rescued and saved from the wrath of my parents. All I got to say is pass the buck. I, all I got to do is pass the buck. All I got to do is, is give an indication it wasn't me, and I get to cover it up. But we find out that when we're at that point already, we're already trashed because they're going to find out we didn't do it. So we learn from that. And as we get older, we learn we need to do better at lying. And the best way that we lie is when we do something wrong, we cover it up in advance. In advance of them finding out. We, do, we cover our tracks so well so that they'll never come to a point of saying, who did this? Did you do this? We rescue ourselves in advance. And what ends up happening, and we've all been there, our problems, the problems we cause are exponentially more problematic when we try to hide them because ultimately our sins find us out. Ultimately, it surfaces, and that's drastic. And the betrayal that our spouse, the betrayal of our parent, the betrayal of our friend, when they find out that this has happened after all this time is significantly more damaging that if we simply copped to what we did in the first place and repented. Or worse, that's bad. Or worse is we actually do a really good job of hiding it and covering our tracks. And it's not weeks or months, but it's years and years and years that we've kept on maintaining this lie and covering up our tracks. And as I'm saying that, you might, things might be coming to your mind in your own life and you're like, yeah, but you don't understand. If that surfaced, it would be the end of me. And now we can empathize with David, who feels the same thing. And so David sent this word to Joab, next verse. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. 
When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Does David care about any of those things? No. This is a cover letter. This is a cover letter to, to Uriah. He's like, I don't even really care about these things. I just need to come up with small talk before I get to what I'm actually after, which is covering up what I did with your wife. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah let, which I don't know what that means, but so Uriah, he left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all of his master's servants and did not, did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Okay, the question hangs in the air. And David should have known the answer because David already gave it back when he was running away from Saul. Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife. As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. And David is looking face to face with someone who has far more character and integrity than he possibly could dream of. And it's making him crazy. Absolutely frustrating him. That he can't dirty Uriah. That he can't cause Uriah to do something without any dignity, without any glory. He can't cause him to do something like that. He can't make Uriah like himself. And in his frustration, he continues on. Then David said to him, stay here one more day, and, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. We never saw that scene in any of our flannel graphs in Sunday school, but it's there. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. Even though he was drunk, he did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. And this is where it gets really dark. And David's, David's moves in survival mode of covering up his, his mistakes, covering up his sin, goes super dark and super sideways. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah on the front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So when, while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at the place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah, the Hittite, died. This guy, this Hittite, he's an outsider. He's a foreigner. He's actually been grafted into the, the people of God and has fought for them. He's got so much integrity and dignity. And yet David, who has made that first epic fail, that first incredibly, incredibly massive failure, is now in survival mode and, and covering up mode. And the problems we cause are exponentially more problematic when we try to hide them. And when we, when we watch the news today, we realize that this is, in fact, still our story, where we have people of position and popularity and power imposing their position and popularity and power and track record and people trust me and people love me and people don't say no to me, imposing that upon somebody else who's under them, someone who's, who's less powerful than them, who has less influence than them, thinking, well, come on, it's me. 
As I've, as I've read through blogs from Huffington Post, CNN, and others, people are having a drastic hard time, massive issue with trying to grapple with the fact these are the people we love their films. We love their films. We listen to the news delivered by them. They were our entertainers and our informers. We, and this is the words of Huffington Post, we trusted you. We trusted you. And as this has surfaced, all of a sudden we have this, this massive reality of the fact that you have broken our trust and our culture, our society has said, and you will pay. And they're taking these guys down one after another after another. There's this massive righteous frustration with how they have victimized people and they are paying the cost. And that is exactly, that is exactly what David wanted to avoid. David did not want to become a national spectacle. David did not want his position, his power, or his popularity damaged. And so David opts out until David is met with a pronouncement of unbelievable honesty Remember how last week we talked about how um, David had that one? Who was the one friend David had? Jonathan. And Jonathan would have been amazing in this time, but a major problem uh, was that Jonathan died in battle. So Jonathan did not walk with David through this point in David's history. Jonathan's, Jonathan's gone. David does have another friend, though. And his friend is Nathan. Perhaps the only friend that he has. He's not just a friend. He's also a prophet. He's someone who, whose job it is to be the mouthpiece of God to the country, and specifically in this context, to David. And, jo- and Nathan, Nathan is the one who speaks into David's life. The words that you got to know had to make him just quake with fear of the possibility of, if David is willing to do that to Uriah to cover his tracks, and I confront him on it, what is he going to do to me? But check out what he does. If you've got your your Bibles, it's in 2 Samuel 12, story page 162, second to last paragraph. It says this, the Lord said to Nathan, Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, and pause here real quick. Remember the last time you had to actually like confront someone? Do you you remember rehearsing what you were going to say in your mind? Maybe there was an employee or a coworker or a spouse or a kid, and you're thinking, this is going to be something I, um, one time I was talking with Julie about we, were, we had to confront one of our kids, and I said, Julie, we need to be very careful because they're going to remember this conversation when they're 40. We have to be careful the words that we're about to say. You have to know Nathan is asking God for direction on the words that he's going to say, and listen to how it comes out. It's amazing. When Nathan came to him, he said, there are two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, it drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. At this point, David is, is calling back as a shepherd those moments of like, yeah, you know, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a shepherd, it's my job, but there's sometimes there's this little lamb that you just love that you want to take care of. Now, a traveler, Nathan continues, came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity." Isn't it amazing, even in the midst of your own sin, how easy it is to see other people's and be super offended? Like, even as I'm watching the news, I'm like, I'm just offended. I'm like, yeah, bring that guy down, yeah. And, and totally like, I'm super offended at their stuff. Not so much mine, but really offended at theirs. 
right? David's in that moment where that hip, the hypocrisy is just surfacing. And Nathan, in that poignant moment, looks at David and says, you are the man. You are the man, David. You rich, self-absorbed, pompous king. You are the man. He continues on. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah, all of it. And if this had, not been, if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why? Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despise me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this very thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. That that happens when Absalom, his son, sleeps with David's concubines in an effort to under, um, undercut the national confidence politically of David. Like if, if his kid could do this, then how, why are we respecting this guy? Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. This is the amazing thing. Um, in this passage, we see that all of the, 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 the fact that, that Bathsheba was a victim in this, that, that Uriah was a victim in this, that there their, the things that wronged them could have been just covered over by history and justice would have never happened. We see in this passage that God is a just God and he does bring justice. In his time, he brings justice and he will surface it. And even those after God's own heart like David aren't impenetrable to God's wrath and God's justice. And, and, we, and again, this is not censored out of the Bible. The Bible is not a highlight reel of heroes. It's an it's a accounting of God's dealing with real people, with real struggles and real sin. When, when Nathan approaches, um, when we have Nathan approaching uh, David, he actually does so in a way that is amazing. And, and this is just a sidestep. When, when we're actually bringing a, a unbelievable honesty with people that we have to confront in our own lives, whether they're in your family or that, they're that, that believer that you have in your life, we need to recognize that there's ways, things that we can learn from Nathan. Um, Kim Scott, who wrote uh, Radical Candor, uh, she's a, a, a former Google exec. Uh, she was in a lot of Silicon Valley's, uh, Valley's um, corporations and organizations and companies. She write, writes this book on leadership called Radical Candor, which is a really phenomenal book. And she says, one of the worst um, traits within any organization is the inability to confront well, to bring hard truth to someone. She said that if you look at this diagram, you have um, the care factor, like how much I care for you, that's the arrow going up. How much I challenge you, that's the arrow going to the right. She said sometimes people fall into the bottom quadrant right there where they don't really care about you, but they're going to tell you how messed up you are. I'm going to challenge you directly. I'm going to tell you exactly what's wrong with you. I don't care about you. I have no love for you. And I'm going to tell you what you, what you did is wrong. That type of person? That type of person, Kim Scott says, is a, has a obnoxious aggression. They come across with obnoxious aggression. They're very confrontational. Lots of truth. But there's zero care. Low on the care threshold. And so it comes across as obnoxious aggression. As they fall into the other quadrant, they're the type of person that they don't really care about you. And they don't really care to talk with you about any issues that you have. 
And so they come across as manipulative insincerity. They'll smile before you. They'll like nod their head. You'll think that you're, you're cool with this acquaintance. And behind your back, they are totally knifing you in the back because they don't care about you and they're not going to tell you any helpful information. If you're someone who has, uh, you're low on the direct challenge, but you really care about this person, I just, I love you, I love you, and I love you so much, I'm not going to tell you the truth because I want you to love me back. That type of person has ruinous empathy, ruinous empathy, and they said that sometimes this is the worst because when you have ruinous empathy, you love someone so much, but you don't have the courage to actually say something that could actually help them. Can anyone relate to that? Yeah, that, that's, that's something that's in a lot of us. Kim Scott says that the ideal quadrant to be in is someone who is willing to give you a direct challenge, be completely honest with you, and is coming from a place of love, of high care. And that person has radical candor. And I would, I would argue that in this account, we have Nathan in that quadrant. The prophet Nathan is actually someone who says, I love you, David, and I love you so much, and I love the Lord so much, I'm going to be radically honest with you. This could cost me my life, but I'm going to communicate to you directly the truth because this is from God, and it's coming from that angle of high love and high challenge. When we, when we look at this, we see the fruit of that showing up in David's response. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, this is different. This is a radical departure from Saul because Saul, when, when Saul did something and he gets calls to the mad for it by Samuel, what does he do? He makes excuses. Okay, if you're a parent, that's like, right? I mean, that's, there's things that make you crazy as parents. Lots of things. That's why parents are crazy. But there's crazy makers. One of the crazy makers as your kids get older is like, is the excuses. Well, I didn't know. Yes, you did. Well, no one told me. I told you, Right? Saul is consistently being an excuse laboratory, a generator, a factory of excuses. When he gets called out, David gets confronted. And even though he covered up, even though he did the actions, he repents. Why is David called a person after God's own heart? This murderous, adulterous man. I believe a picture of it is that humility of heart and the repentance. Now, the important thing for us to understand, though, is that that had ramifications. David's choices had ramifications. Um, but God is someone who comes and steps into the moment in a period of restoration. And that, that brings us to our last point, which is the path we see in David's life of unparalleled restoration. Restoration is something that our culture does not do well. Confronting sin is something our culture does not do well. But right now we're in a season where our offense du jour is what's taking place in the sex abuse scandals. That's something that everyone could jump on board and say, this offends me. And as Christians, we watch as these people who were up here and, and they betrayed the trust of, of, their, of their viewers. They betrayed the trust of, of the people they've entertained. And all of a sudden they get fired Honestly, I'm watching the TV and there's a part of me that's like, yes, boom, you deserve that. And our whole culture is jumping on that bandwagon. Yes, he's out, he's fired. What our culture, so as Christians, we see the righteous, right ramifications and we agree with that. The problem is that our culture is now doing this okay with this particular issue. What they don't do well is, then what? Okay, Matt Lauer's gone. Okay, now what? I don't care, he's gone. I've exiled. I've, I've, as far as I'm concerned, he's damned to hell. He's gone. That's, uh, he did this, he's gone. 
Culturally speaking, if we don't have the gospel, all we can do is get enraged and act out so that we even the score, we make things right. But we rob ourselves of what happens next. You may have right ramifications for these people or the people in your world who've done different things. And my question to you is this, do your right ramifications contain a recovery plan? Because that's the gospel. The gospel recognized that we can be absolutely honest with sin and that sin has consequences. David's life, when he repented right there before Nathan, it wasn't like, and then everything got good. I mean, like the family, they, they vacationed in Florida after that. Everyone got together. It was super cool from, until his dying day. David's family was dysfunctional from that point on for the rest of his life. David had drama and issues for the rest of his life that stemmed from that one decision that he made ramifications and consequences for the rest of his life. And yet, we look and see what happened in the rest of David's life as he started to pen poetry and worship to God, expressing this appreciation for the God who steps in and creates out of the darkness of sin a new heart. And to take from the being burned from our own decisions and watching the, the carnage that we've caused to seeing new hope. See, this is what our world is starving for. Right now, we're, we're great at being judgmental. We can judge and we bring the judgment. And I would say righteously so. But what Christian can bring to the stage is the gospel perspective that comes on the other side. See, the gospel gives us the opportunity to be both honest and realize that we can come before God in repentance and be restored. Um, Tim Keller, um, in a book on marriage, writes this. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. We, we, we are messed up. We are sinful people. We should be excluded, and yet at the same time, we are brought near by God. And, and um, Keller points out that a lot of times marriages struggle because they're either really big on, on, the, on the care side or they're really big on the truth side. And, and, he, and he makes the point that, that truth without love is harsh. And, and all it does, uh, truth without love is just harsh, and, and it gives you information, but you can never do anything with it. But love without truth is just sentimentality. He, he talks about how this, how this type of love actually transforms us in our walk with Christ. He says, God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are, and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. If you're in a marriage, by the way, and you have someone who knows the darkest parts of you, and still loves you. Man, that's freedom. They know the darkest parts about you, and they still love you. That's peace. When someone doesn't know everything about you, and they love you, there's no peace there. Or if someone is constantly punishing you for your decisions, there's no peace there. Every relationship struggles with this, but our relationship with God is the model. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. The merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and repent. The conviction and repentance moves us to cling to and rest in God's mercy and grace. And so when we see David get confronted and we see David repent, all of a sudden we see poetry that surfaces from that. In your Bible, it's Psalm 51. If you've got your copy of, of the story, it's on page 163 on the bottom there. 
David pens this after he gets confronted by Nathan. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Walk, wash away all of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And listen to what he says here. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. When I first read that, I remember being a junior high or a high schooler, being totally confused by that. Because I'm like, how is David saying, against you and you only have I sinned? David sinned against Bathsheba. David killed Uriah. How is it just between him and God that he sinned? Well, listen to the, the verse right before that, what it says. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. David is saying, I am looking at, I am swimming in the carnage of my mistakes, of my decisions, of my rebellion. I see those I have wounded. That is constantly, blaringly, full volume in my head. And yet, when I look at the fact that I've wronged these people, I look at who else I've wronged, and I recognize that wronging a holy God is infinitely more damaging making it look as if you're the only one that I have offended on this level. He jumps down to the very end, and I love this. This is my favorite part of Psalm 51. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain, to sustain me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a steadfast spirit to sustain me. David is saying, I have walked in distance from you, God, and I did it for a long time. Give me a steadfast spirit so that I'm walking tight with you and give me back the joy of my salvation. When we sing joy to the world, when we come into the Advent season and we're singing joy to the world, man, there's lots of nostalgia there but recognize the meaning behind the words. The reason there's joy to the world is that God has brought into the darkness of our world the joy of being rescued. Rescued from ourselves, rescued from our sin, rescued from the darkness. Why don't you go ahead and get the, the lights back there. We cannot possibly come into Christmas without a deep understanding that it starts with darkness, that it starts with emptiness. That it starts with not us, God coming into the world to rescue people who are in the light, but God coming into the world to rescue people who are dead in their sins and in the dark. And into the darkness comes the light. The book of John talks, is so beautiful about this because it talks about how Jesus came into the darkness as the light, that he claimed to be the light, that he was the one and true light. The, the, the Christmas story starts out with a great light in the sky shining down and leading people the wise men, to find the toddler Jesus, to worship him. And we, we remember that story because we say we, like the wise men, need to come to this baby Jesus to follow the light, to see the true light, the light of the world. The light has come into the darkness. Amazing thing that Jesus does as he communicates to people who understand him to be the one true light, he says, and now you are the light of the world. We're not God. But he says, you are, if you're in me, a reflection, an ambassador of the light that the world is dying without. Who in your world is still in the dark? Who in your world 
has done something that feels that has distanced them from God and there's no way they could possibly be forgiven. Last night after the service, um, someone said, this is why I hate the holidays. I hate the holidays because when I go home to my family, I'm reminded of where I came from before I was a Christian and I remember the darkness. And I just want to boycott it. I just want to stay home, stay away. And this person's friend said to her, Yes, but you are a Christian. You may be the only light that your family sees. Now, if we really take that seriously and we don't just treat this holiday season as a materialistic you know, deluge of just having the only value being generosity and giving, but we actually recognize that this is a reminder of the fact that God became man, then all of a sudden we see that his light spreads. If you have your phone, if you could turn on your flashlight, and then just hold that up. What we see is when Christians are acting as Christians, the light comes into the world, and we all of a sudden see the darkness around us illuminated, not with our light, but the light of Christ. If you look around this room right now, this is the church. This is the Grundy, Will County, Kendall County area right here. And the church, we have an opportunity to shine the light of redemption of the gospel that King David experienced that you and I reflect from the baby Jesus who grew up, died on the cross, and rescued us from our sin. Amen? Amen. May we live that out this year. Please stand for prayer. Lord Jesus, we understand you to be the light. We are not the light. Sometimes, God, though, we often uh, get to a place where we overlook our sin. We look at other people's sins And we could stand in judgment, rightfully so, about the fact that their sin is wrong, painful, hurtful, and damaging. But Lord, I pray that you cause in us the grace and the mercy that we've experienced from you, Jesus, to be extended to others. Lord, for the people in our world who do not deserve grace, who do not deserve mercy, Lord, I pray that you create in them a new heart and you renew a right spirit within them that you give them your Holy Spirit and that you give them the joy of salvation and a steadfast spirit to sustain them as you're doing that with us. And we will give you the thanks and the glory for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You're welcome to join us this Thursday for a concert uh, for Carrollton here, seven o'clock on Thursday. See you then.